Section 23 of The American Egypt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jairus Amar. The American Egypt by Channing Arnold and Frederick J. Taber Frost. Section 23. Who were America's first architects? Part 1. The proposition that the Mayans were taught to build by foreign visitors involves three postulates. 1. Such foreign visitors came from a land where the knowledge of architecture had reached a considerable degree of perfection. 2. They landed in Central America well within historic times. 3. They belonged to none of the so-called white races. These postulates very materially narrow the area of the globe in which we can profitably look for their home, and the task which at first sight appears to rival the proverbial one of looking for a needle in a haystack becomes, if approached by the light of common sense, comparatively simple. Common sense cannot be said to have distinguished most of those who have striven heretofore to crack this architectural nut. Broadly speaking, there have been two contending bands of theorists, those who were determined at all costs to claim the architecture of Central America as homegrown, and those who, figuratively speaking, shut their eyes and with the map of the world before them, and bodkin in hand, pricked some spot, opened their eyes, and triumphantly declared there's the place. As for the first, we have done our best in the last chapter to show that they have not a leg to stand on. As for the second, they have defeated their efforts by their own vagueness. They have wandered over the earth's surface and chosen in turn any and every country which at any period of its history has been known to possess an architecture of its own. Thus have the Egyptians the Scandinavians, the Phoenicians, the Chinese, the Japanese, the Tatars, the Polynesians, all in turn been suggested as the originators of America's native architecture. East, West, South, North, races in nearly every continent have been commandeered to act either as the parents of the whole Mayan people or as their foreign tutors in the art of building. The most remarkable of all theories was that advanced by Dr. Lou Plongeon, who invited the world to believe that the Mayans, or Mayaks, as he insisted upon calling them, were the first of all races in the world to become architects, and that they taught the art to the ancient Egyptians and everybody else. In pursuance of this perfectly lunatic suggestion, he dated the civilization of Central America 11,500 years back. This preposterous proposition was received with the Homeric laughter it so richly deserved. But really, there was something to be said for the poor doctor's point of view. He belonged to the class of theorists who at all hazards wished to give America the glory of having produced the very remarkable building skill shown to have existed in her central territories. The only difference between him and his fellow theorists 
was that he had the courage of his convictions, and they had not. A few thousand years were trifles to a man who could theorize so briefly as Lou Plongeon, and courage is always admirable. The good doctor was at least no craven, no timorous, afraid of his own shallow type of theorist. He was a titan among the theorizing minnows, a genius in the art, for he possessed the genius of enthusiasm. The others of the indigenous school have proved half-hearted and vague. If you insist upon their coming to the point and saying whence the builders really came, they try to parry your insistence by asking a question in their turn. Whence came the African Negroes? To this the correct reply, according to Professor E. Morse, is, from Africa, of course, Originally? Yes, originally. They constitute the African or Negro subspecies of man. This is a mode of arguing which is fundamentally unsound for the excellent reason that the cases of the African and American races are not analogous. For even if the aboriginal peoples of America could be assumed to be as strictly indigenous in their habitat as the negroid peoples are generally held to be in theirs, you have still to explain an isolated outburst of civilization in Central America marking off an extraordinarily restricted area, comparatively speaking, from the vast continental expanses north and south. But the ethnical problems of the Negro and the American are not even so far analogous, for, as all the world knows, the generally accepted theory as to the American race is that it must be ultimately referred to the mongoloid division of mankind, and that the New World was in prehistoric times peopled from Asia. But if this view, supported as it is by a physical resemblance in some cases so remarkable as to quite stultify the suggestion of coincidence, were upset, you would still be confronted with the unanswerable question, if American architecture is of home growth, why was it restricted to one very small area? For the proposition that it is indigenous almost demands the postulate that it evolved at such an early date in some form or other as to allow time for it to spread far into the north and south of the New World. If any deduction is possible from its singular localization, it is surely that it was introduced from outside, and at so comparatively recent a date before the arrival of the white race in the Americas, as not to have permitted time for it to spread far. Everything then points to the exotic nature of American architecture. Whence came its originators? Our postulates enable us to narrow the inquiry to Egypt, Japan, China, India, Ceylon, and the Malay Peninsula. Let us take these possibilities in this order. Egypt has been a great temptation to many, and in truth it is difficult, when you are first face to face with such very Egyptian-looking statues as the Atlantean figures which we found at Chichen, and which are described on page 98, to resist the thought that there must be some connection between the stone marvels of the Nile Valley and the palaces of Yucatan. But putting aside the extraordinary difficulties 
in the way of mapping a possible route by which the connection between the two peoples could be effected, all available evidence is against you. The buildings of the two races are unlike in structure and design, in ornamentation and decoration, and if this dissimilarity could be explained away, and an attempt made to link the two ethnically, there is not a shred of evidence, physically, mythologically, philologically, or such as might be derived from a community of manners and customs, to help out the effort. With Egypt gone, we have to deal with the different parts of Asia mentioned. Asia has been popular with many theorizers, lured on by the recollection that the greatest ethnologists agree that America was peopled from Asia via the Bering Straits. They see no difficulty in the Mayan architects coming that way too. Indeed, these straits are a very tempting spot, the narrow neck of land where the two continents almost join. It is less than 36 miles across between East Cape, Asia, and Prince of Wales Cape, America and on those rare days when the atmosphere permits. It is almost always foggy thereabouts. One can see across with the naked eye. Between the two capes are three small, now uninhabited islands, and the deepest part of the channel is but 30 fathoms, 180 feet. Before Bering's expedition to this region in 1728, it was thought that the continents did actually join. For Dezhnev, the Russian who is said to have sailed these waters in 1648, was regarded as an inventor of fables when he stated that a passage existed. The affinity of the Eskimos to the Japanese has long been a favorite theme of ethnologists, and Dr. Toro, who devoted much time and study to this question, thinks he has proved past all dispute that the two peoples are kinsmen. But be this as it may, and whether one accepts or not the peopling of the Americas from Asia via the Bering Straits, it is as good as impossible to maintain that the builders came into America by this route. Were this so, we should most certainly find traces of their march south to the chief field of their activities. The most fanatical of the theorists must surely admit that the fact that we do not is an insuperable objection to their theory. That a migrating race of architects passed through the whole length of North America and kept their art a profound secret till they reached the center of the New World is literally unthinkable. No, if America was peopled from Asia, it was in times so remote that the inhabitants of Asia did not themselves know the art of building. The age of American man has been a keenly debated question. Nothing has yet been found which can be reckoned a proof that he existed previous to the present geological epoch. Dr. Lund, who has devoted much time to the problem, states that he found but one trace of man among those of the extinct mammalia, and this was dubious, for there were signs that the strata where they were discovered had been disturbed within some recent period, during which the human remains had possibly been buried. But American man must at least be prehistoric, and being so, he is all too early, if he was to bring the knowledge of building with him. And if it is urged that the mysterious architects came in well within historic times, 
after the New World was already peopled by their kinsmen, the lack of traces of them and their art is more than ever a full answer. That the builders came from Asia, we are convinced, but they came direct to Central America by sea. Taking Japan as first of the Asiatic countries from which the builders may have come, there is much made of the close similarity of the objects found in the shell heaps of North America and the upper Amazon on the one hand, and on the other, those of North and South Japan, especially those of Amori. The pottery is much alike. You have the crenellated fillet and the cord markings. But these features of prehistoric pottery have been shown to exist among many peoples. Again, there is a close resemblance in the stone implements found. But Sir John Evans, in his ancient stone implements of Great Britain, points out that stone implements are identical in most lands. He instances those of the Nile Valley, which are so precisely like those found in the Kentish Ulite, that the most experienced archaeologist could not tell them apart. But if there is nothing in this positive evidence, there is much in the negative evidence available. The architecture of Japan is derived from the Chinese, and is of a comparatively recent date. It is in all ways dissimilar to that of Central America. Further, that the Japanese early possessed the potter's wheel is proved by their ancient mortuary vessels. There was not a potter's wheel in America. Again, the Japanese ritual of the 3rd and 4th centuries, as contained in the Kojiki and Nihonji, have no analogy with Mexican ritual. Again, in Japan and Korea we find bronze mirrors and bells unknown in America, and an early knowledge of tempering steel in Japan is quite lacking in the land of the Mayans. What about China? Here there are vague resemblances between the buildings of the two peoples, but at most they are those features in which one might trace a similarity between the productions of any two building races. As in Japan, ritual and customs are all distinct from those found among the Mayans. Those who would have us believe that Central American civilization was of Chinese origin have been much influenced by that fable promulgated by the Chinese historian Li Yan, who lived in the 7th century. He states the existence of a country which he calls the land of the Fusang, and which he declared lay 40,000 li, eastward of China. Li Yan had the tale from a Buddhist priest Hui Shan, but the curious point is that the latter described himself as a priest coming from the land of the Fusang, and says nothing as to how he got there or how he became a Buddhist in this unknown country. In an article in Volume 1V of New Annals of Voyages, entitled Researches Regarding the Country of the Fusang, H. J. von Klaproth points out that this could not have been Mexico because of the horses and carts mentioned. And these were of course unknown in Mexico in pre-conquest times. He says Japan was the place, and this he supports by showing that it was early called Fusang, beautiful. The distance as given by Li Yan is, according to Klaproth, no difficulty 
as the lee was a very variable measure, quite apart from the fact that the priest would have no accurate means of measuring. His forty thousand lee may be on par with the mulberry trees thousands of feet high and the silkworms seven feet long, which form part of this fairy tale. As Professor E. Morris points out in his pamphlet, was Middle America peopled from Asia? In a problem like this, small proofs are often most valuable, and if all else were lacking, the absence in Central America of the glazed roofing tile so common in China from 2000 B.C. is very significant, seeing that pottery glazing had been brought to a high point of perfection there. Again, in China the potter's wheel and the plow were in common use from the earliest times, but there is no trace of either in Central America. Indeed, no one has been able to reduce a piece of real evidence for the theory that the Chinese endowed the Mayans with their art of building. But if in Egypt, Japan, and China we have not been even warm, as children's forfeit games have it, when we turn to India and the Malay Peninsula, we are growing distinctly burning. In such a problem, the evidence most valuable is perhaps afforded by the opinions of those who have not worked in the special field of archaeology, and are thus untrammeled by theories. Let us start with one or two such opinions, and then we will pass from this general to the particular evidence to which our minds prove that America obtained her architecture from this part of Asia. Mr. R. Spence Hardy, in his book Eastern Monarchism, London, 1850, after seeing drawings of the monuments of Yucatan, on page 22 writes, The ancient edifices of Chichen in Central America bear striking resemblance to the topes of India. The shape of one of the domes, the apparent size, the small tower on the summit, the trees growing on the sides, the appearance of masonry here and there, the style of ornamentation, and the small doorways at the base, are so exactly similar to what I have seen at Anuradhapura that when my eyes first fell upon the engravings of the remarkable ruins, I supposed that they were represented in illustration of the Dagobas of Ceylon. Writing in the Edinburgh Review for April 1867, another author says, The great temple at Palenque so closely corresponds in its principal details with that of Boro Budur in the province of Kalu, Java, as to place beyond all reasonable debate the common purpose and origin of both. Both were elevated on a series of graduated platforms or terraces, and are reached by successive flights of steps, facing the cardinal points. The chambers in both are disproportionately small, with no apertures, except the doorways, for the admission of air and light. Their curved ceilings, formed of stones overlapping each other, triangular-wise, and constituting what is known as a cyclopean arch, are precisely alike. Other authors might be quoted to show that the general appearance of the two sets of ruins is so similar as to attract the attention of the casual visitor. But we will now pass to our particular evidence. As will have been seen from many of our illustrations, 
the buildings of Central America were, with but a few exceptions, built on pyramids. Now it is a fact that wherever Buddhism prevailed in ancient times, we find a truncated pyramid, either of the square or round form. As at the temple of Boro Budor, these pyramids generally had buildings on the top. They were built of earth and rubble, covered with a layer of bricks or hewn stone, the whole then plastered over with stucco which, according to Spence Hardy, is composed of lime, coconut water, and the juice of the paragua. The ruins of Chichen, Uxmal, Kaaba, Sayil, Labna, and all the others we visited were built in the same way. The pyramids are invariably built of earth and rubble covered over with a layer of hewn stone slabs of various sizes. The walls of buildings, as in the tennis courts at Chichen, often had a section in the center filled up with rubble, and in most cases the whole had been stuccoed over. Now let us take that most characteristic of all features of Mayan architecture, the so-called Mayan arch. In the strict sense, it is not an arch at all. It never reached the stage of being curved, but was a series of inverted steps rising to the roof and crowned with a slab, as will be plainly seen in our illustration. Sometimes the steps were hewn off so as to give an even surface on which plaster was smeared. Now this peculiar arch is found in ancient Buddhist structures and nowhere else in the world. John Crawford, in his History of the Indian Archipelago, three volumes, Edinburgh, 1820, in volume two, page 200, when speaking of the interior of the buildings there, writes, The stones overlap each other within, so as to present to the eye the appearance of inverted steps of a stair. The builders of Bramhanen had possessed the art of turning the elliptical arch and vault, for the entrances and doorways are all arched and the roofs vaulted. A circular vault or arch, however, is nowhere to be found among the ruins, and the principle of turning an arch is nowhere carried to such a length as to convey the impression of grandeur or magnificence. This might as appropriately have been written of the Mayan buildings where in the very few instances the arch was continued along more than one side of the building, as in the Castillo of Chichen, it does not make a circular turn, but comes to a corner and then goes off at right angles. The only circular turning arch we saw was the continuously rounded one in the Caracol at Chichen. Next, let us take the interior wall paintings of the buildings of both countries. Most of the inner walls of the buildings in Central America bear traces of paints on the plaster. The biggest room at Chichen, that on the south side of the nunnery, 47 feet by 9, was once covered with paintings from the floor to the apex of the roof. So were the smaller rooms. But owing to vandalism and natural decay of the plaster, they cannot now be properly traced. There is, however, enough to show that they represented the inhabitants of the city. Again, in the House of the Tigers, standing up gaunt and majestic on the wall of the tennis court, 
the everyday life of the builders is depicted by the artist in blues, greens, yellows, and the reddish-brown. Now turn to the ancient Buddhist edifices. Sven's Hardy, Eastern Monarchism, page 230, says, The whole interior, whether rock, wall, or statue, is painted in brilliant colors, but yellow much predominates. In one place the artist has attempted to depict part of the early history of the island, beginning with the voyage of Wijaya, which is represented by a ship with only the lower mast, and without sails. Alongside are fishes as large as a vessel. In representing the buildings of the great Dagobas of Anuradhapura, the proportions are no better preserved, and these artificial mountains appear to be little larger than the persons employed in finishing them. The ornamental paintings, where proportion was not of paramount importance, are very neat, and all the colors appear to be permanent and bright. This lack of proportion in the human figures is very noticeable at Chichen, the figures often entirely dwarfing the huts in which they are supposed to be standing. Next, let us take the isolated example of decoration, about which there has been much controversy, the red hand. We have before spoken of this strange mark on the walls of mine buildings. It looks like a hand that has been dipped in a reddish-brown pigment, almost blood color, and then pressed upon the wall. This in many cases it undoubtedly is, for the actual lines of the hand can be discerned. Now Lou Pajon, in his Vestiges of the Mines, was the first, we believe, to call attention to the fact that the New York Herald of April 12, 1879, in describing General Ulysses S. Grant's visit to Ram Singh, Maharaja of Jaipur, says, We passed small temples, some of them ruined, some others with offerings of grains or fruits or flowers, some with priests and people at worship. On the walls of some of the temples, we saw the marks of the human hand as though it had been steeped in blood and pressed against the white wall. We were told that it was the custom, when seeking from the god some venison, to note the vow by putting the hand into a liquid and printing it on the wall. This was to remind the gods of the vow and prayer, and if it came to pass in the shape of rain or food or health or children, the joyous devotee returned to the temple and made offerings. Stephens, in the appendix of Volume 2 of Incidents of Travel in Yucatan, gives a communication from Henry Rowe Schoolcraft, who writes, The figure of the human hand is used by the North American Indians to denote supplication to the daily or great spirit. In the course of many years' residence on the frontiers, including various journeyings among the tribes, I have had frequent occasion to remark the use of the hand alone as a symbol. But it has generally been a symbol applied to the naked body after its preparation and decoration for sacred or festive dances. And the fact deserves further consideration from these preparations being generally made in the arcanum of the medicine or secret lodge or some other private place, and with the skill of the priests or medicine man's or juggler's art. The mode of applying it in these cases 
is by smearing the hand of the operator with white or colored clay and pressing it on the breast, the shoulder, or other part of the body. The idea is thus conveyed that a secret influence, a charm, a mystic power, is given to the dancer, arising from his sanctity or his proficiency in the occult arts. This use of the hand is not confined to a single tribe of people. I have noticed it alike among the Dakotas, the Winnebagos, and other western tribes, as among the numerous branches of the red race still located east of the Mississippi River, above the latitude of 42 degrees, who speak dialects of the Algonquin languages. There is thus no doubt that the red hand of the Mayans had its analogy among the tribes of North America, and thus by itself it is of little moment in the present argument. But we have made a singular and most important discovery. On the friezes of the stupa of Barahat in India, found in 1873 by Sir Alexander Cunningham, the date of the building which is accepted as approximately 200 B.C., are rows of hands carved. These hands are precisely similar in shape to those we discovered in great numbers on the ruins of the island of Kozumo, and to those we saw on other Mayan ruins. There can be no doubt as to the identity of this symbolic decoration, and we believe that here exists a most important link in the chain of evidence connecting America and the East. There are those who will at once declare that the very fact that the symbol can be shown to have a very wide use in North America forbids the idea that it came from the East. This is clearly not so. If the date we shall suggest as the likely one for the arrival of the Eastern immigrants in Central America, by even approximately accurate, there would be ample time for the symbols to spread sufficiently into the North for schoolcraft and the middle of the 19th century to find it broadcast among very distant tribes. Among such a proverbial superstitious race as the American Indians, such a symbol would rapidly catch on, and the fact that a very extended trade existed between the natives of Yucatan and the tribes around the Gulf of Mexico from early times makes its introductions very easily explained fact. Next, let us make a brief examination of the architectural ornamentation of the ancient buildings of the Buddhist East and those of Central America, and see if there exist any similarities which are of a nature to help the proof of the connection. Much has been made of that peculiar feature of Mayan decorative art, the snouted mask or elephant trunk, common on the buildings of Palenque, Chichen and Uxmal, and many other cities. This is shown in many of our illustrations. It is a trunk-like projection which is used as an ornamentation on the cornices. In this some have eagerly found a reminiscence of India's elephant. There would not seem to be the least reason for these zoological speculations. An examination of the ornament reveals a rudely carved face on the wall behind, and if we turn to the Codex Cortesianus we find reoccurring therein the figure of a deity with a peculiarly elongated nose, an exact miniature of this much-discussed architectural ornamentation. Thus, there can be little doubt that the snouted mask was the symbol of a deity, 
possibly the tapir god, who is always represented with a snout which is a parody of that of the real animal. But if there is nothing in the elephant theory of the so-called snouted mask, there is a very curious type of ornamentation in some of the Mayan buildings which may prove of great import in this connection. At Labna, at Copan and elsewhere, are found, as the finish of cornices, alligator heads, the one we saw at Labna having a half-curled elephant trunk, with jaws agape, from within them a grotesque face peering out. This is so peculiar a design that it must be admitted that a parallel to it in any land would be at least suggestive. We have found an exact parallel where we should most have hoped to find it. Heads of the alligator's congener, the crocodile, exist in large numbers at Borobudur and in the ruined Buddhist cities of Ceylon. In his Cambodge at Java, 1896, M. Albert Tissandier gives illustrations of the gargoyles decorating the terraces of Borobudur, showing them to be the fantastic heads of crocodiles, surmounted by a half-crowed elephant trunk. He writes, we translate, This type of crocodile, ornamented with the trunk of an elephant, appears to be of Singhalese origin. I have remarked numerous examples at Anura Hapura in Ceylon, the building of which is much more ancient than Borobudur, and also at Polo Narua. The arcades at Borobudur end at the base in the head of a crocodile like the gargoyles I have described above. From out of the open jaws of these monsters peers in each case a little demon with grinning face. It is difficult indeed to believe that so singular a design and detail of decoration should have been evolved at once in ancient Buddhist India and among the American Indians of Yucatan and Guatemala. An exhaustive comparison of the ornamentation of Mayan and Eastern buildings would doubtless yield valuable data, but when we state that there are many hundreds of patterns of decoration employed on the buildings of Yucatan, it will be seen that this would need a volume to itself. Broadly speaking, the decorations of the two types of architecture are dissimilar, and if one reflects, this is really no more than one would expect. As we have said, the Eastern introducers of building could not bring with them much knowledge of detailed ornamentation. The actual decorative designs on Mayan structures might be reasonably expected to be developed in the country. Only in spots where the invaders had their actual settlements should we find any characteristic designs, and this is exactly what we do find at Copan and Curigua, which we shall presently try to show were among the very earliest, if not the earliest, of their locations. At these two places, the ruins consist chiefly of stelae and altars, and the decorations of these are un-American and Oriental in character but if there is little similarity between the minuter architectural details of the Mayan and Buddhist buildings, we believe that, carefully studied, the former, and particularly, as we should have expected, those at Copan and Curigua 
exhibit distinct survivals of Buddhist influence. Mr. Maudslay, in a superb series of photographs of stelae, Biologia centrali americana, shows clearly in the hands of nearly every figure what he calls a mannequin staff, a short stick surmounted by a human figure issuing from feathers or leaves. He cannot explain it, but we believe that it may be nothing less than a much corrupted survival of the sacred lotus held by Buddhist images. In photographs of carvings at Barahat and also at Boro Budor, the Buddhas and their attendants appear to hold just such short staves, really the rubbery stem surmounted by the lotus flower, out of which seems to issue in some incidences a kind of face. There appear too, in the grasp of many figures of the friezes at Barahat, short sticks surmounted by mannequins seated on bannerets. The mannequin staves at Copan may be a blended memory of these two Buddhistic symbols. Again Mr. Maudsley noticed a detail of Mayan decoration which has escaped other students. He points out that at Palenque and elsewhere is represented a plant which he calls a water plant because fish are seen feeding on the flowers. The leaves and flower buds, he writes, are very clearly drawn and have somewhat the appearance of those of a water lily. He is probably right. It is a water lily, the Buddhist lotus, which figures, often with fish swimming round, in almost every carving at Borobudur and the ruined Buddhist cities. The drawing he gives of the Palenque carving is so exact a copy of the Buddhist lotus as to be quite amazing. The figures on the stelae at Copen and Quirigua, in many cases have across their breasts what looks like a broad band. We believe this to be another Buddhist survival, that is, the ola or palm-leaf book, which Buddha is nearly always shown holding, and which appears in the famous rock statue of King Parakrama in the ruins of Polo Naruwa. See H.W. Cave, Ruined Cities of Ceylon exactly as portrayed in Guatemala. The headdresses of the Sila statues are most reminiscent of the triple tiara of Buddhist images. The large square or round near ornaments at Quirigua are precisely like those in the sculptures of Borobudur and in the island of Madura, a report on the ruins of which latter are published in 1904 by the Dutch government Archaeologus Onderzuk of Java and Madura. A plate in the latter work represents stelae found in Madura in feature and decoration so amazingly like those of Corigua that one might be forgiven for thinking one was looking at one of Mr. Maudslay's superb photographs. The latter noted at Copen curious forehead marks, which suggest to us the sacred Buddha markings. On the north face of the gigantic monolith turtle at Quirigua is a cross-legged figure in which Mr. Maudsley's plate exhibits in the fullest manner many Buddhist survivals. End of section 23